1: Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome to
2: Car Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
3: Hi, and welcome to Car Stuff. I'm your host, Scott Benjamin. And I am also your host, Ben Bolin. We are not alone. We are joined, of course, with our good friend... Kurt Garen, hello everyone! Holy smokes, Scott! Scott <laughs> Benjamin, is it good to see you, man? Well, You're back.
2: Thank you, thank you. I really appreciate that. It's good to be back. It's uh, you. You kept the seat warm.
3: We kept it. Yeah. yeah, we kept the seat warm. We had a number of strange adventures. You know, uh, Kurt and I are always getting into uh, some some weird conversations. We uh, learned about the Tesla Cybertruck,
5: mm-hmm. which
3: uh, would love to hear your thoughts on one day. Uh, We did a piece on the uh, evolution of the El Camino. Remember that one? That
2: was a good one. Oh, yeah.
3: Like El Camino's. You know, the thing that uh, we got caught on was that the name of that translates to just The Road. That's <laughs> yeah, uh, well, not too uh, inspiring, is it, really? I mean, maybe a little bit, but, uh, but
2: uh, yeah, it's, it's good to be back anyway. I really appreciate it, and I uh, thank you guys for keeping the show afloat here while I was gone. I really do uh, thank you for that. And uh, just a, a quick explanation. I just took some time off to uh, kind of get things pulled together in my own personal life. You know, that uh, Insomniac show that I've been working on. That, uh, well, I almost said the word. That's stuff. Is uh, is real? Um, I wasn't kidding around. That really uh, I messed with my sleep, messed with my whole life. Uh, you know, from in here and outside of work, and uh, and it was a disaster. And I just took some time off to kind of pull some things together and, and get back in uh, in the right mindset to do this show and and uh, and be clear and you know a lot more present here with you guys, and, mm-hmm. and I'm really excited about getting back into car stuff and uh, just making it the best show that we can. I'm, I'm really, really happy to be back behind the mic.
3: Likewise. You know, uh, the powers that be would not have let me back onto the show if uh, circumstances had been different. I yeah. kind of snuck back in here. Well, you know <laughs> how I am. Well, that's a
2: bit of a reunion <laughs> for us, right? I mean, yeah. uh, you know, before it was Kurt and I, and that was great, but then when I'm back here, it's like it feels comfortable again. It's like we never stopped doing the show. It, that was years ago. Now it was Ooh. a long, long time ago when we stopped doing that show together. But uh, but we're here. We are again. We got Kurt joining us, who is fantastic, and we're all Thank in you. this tiny little room, uh, <laughs> staring at each other. <laughs> there might be some awkward silence. You never know. We'll see what happens. But but uh, it's it's. I think it's a good team. I think we're going to have a lot of fun with this.
3: Well said. Well yeah. said, Scott. Indeed. So today's episode is. Fascinating because as you would establish you know uh, you, Kurt, and I have been doing some variety or some version or iteration of this show for the better part of a decade, and for a peek behind the curtain, folks uh, long time listeners you'll know this or anyone with your own uh, podcast, after about year five or six on some shows, you start saying well You start forgetting what you had covered, you know, Mm -hmm. in previous episodes. Oh, sure. And wondering what you're going to do. And, Kurt, you recently, you had a fantastic idea. It was such a good idea that I was convinced we had covered it before at some point in the past nine-plus years. And I was wrong. We had never covered it, which baffles me. I think it baffled you too,
2: Scott. It did.
6: Surprising, yeah. So we decided that we would cover sled dog races, most
2: notably the Iditarod in Alaska. Yeah. Now, some people are going to say, what the heck? This is car stuff, right? But if you remember car stuff of the past, Mm. we have always covered just about any form of transportation, just about everything really. And, and, funny thing is, that can even be spun off into other things. Like, I remembered yesterday, we, we've even done, like, the Pinewood Derby cars, you know, right. the Pinewood Derby races. Everything we, that uh,
3: floats, flies, swims, or drives. Exactly, yeah. I mean,
2: it, every form of transportation, and I think this is the perfect time of year to talk about, you know, something like this, you know, some some way of getting around that uh, maybe not everybody is familiar with, but it, it's really fascinating. I mean, when you dig into it and how into Uh, You know, the sleds these people get into the dog teams, of course, they they get Um, just the, the whole lifestyle that goes along with this, the history of it. It's all very rich, isn't
3: it? Yeah, absolutely. It's also one of those races, one of those events that takes us to the limits of what our bodies can like endure And it takes us to the limits of what we would call civilization. You're very much in the frontier. Have either of you ever been to Alaska? I have. You have? Yes. Okay. Where'd you go?
2: Well, I'll tell you, it's not you know, the wilderness experience that you might think. I, I, I took a, an Alaskan cruise many years ago. This is probably seven years ago.
3: That's right. Wait, yeah. yeah, no, I remember.
2: Okay. And we did talk about this on yeah. air. And, and, you know, it goes to the, the usual ports. It was a celebrity brand cruise. I, I, we're not getting paid. Don't worry. Not cel- but celebrity brand <laughs> cruise. So that tells you the ports that we went to. And I, I can't remember all of them, but it was like Ketchikan. Um, oh, gosh, I, I can't even Skagway was one, I know, mm. because I'll tell you this. When we went to Skagway, and we did go a little further north too, but we went to Skagway, and one of the excursions that you could take, and we did do this one, was to go to a dog sled training camp, and Mm -hmm. I did that, and Mm -hmm. we talked about that, and it was fascinating. It was a, you know, I don't know, maybe a 45-minute or an hour bus ride to get to this thing. You're seeing things like bald eagles on the way, and, you know, it's just pristine, beautiful, uh, um, Alaskan countryside, you know, a little mountainous, you know, lots yeah. of trees and things like that. And it wasn't like a, a blizzard or anything like that. It was it was their off season, so they're in training camp, right? Mm-hmm. And you get the opportunity to go and sit in a uh, a training dog sled and have them haul you for a one mile trek around this mountain course that they have. And maybe should I hold on to this for later, or do you want to talk about it right now? It's it's pretty quick. Hey, lay it on us. Okay, man. so at the time, if you remember when I got back from this, I was so fired up about this because <laughs> yeah. it's almost like if you can picture a golf cart, like an elongated golf cart. It's, so it's on wheels, obviously. It's not on skis, and it has a kind of a, a runner in front, like a um, a bump a bump guard maybe or something Ooh. like that. It's, it's it holds six people sitting. There's seats kind of built into this thing. It's an aluminum frame, I believe, or metal frame. And then the musher would stand on the back and they have a dog team in front of you that's pulling. And they pull in this this kind of mountainous, rocky road, right? And I, I'm sitting in this cart with, you know, all these other tourists from the, the boat. And we're not small people. You know, we're adults. My daughter was with us. She was small. But uh, everybody else is adults, even, <laughs> right. the, even the musher. So seven people. When those dogs took off, I mean it slammed me back in the seat. It was it was a, a forceful takeoff and they pulled and pulled and pulled and you thought they were never going to stop. And and the the funny thing is like these dogs were I mean they were jacked about pulling that sled. They loved it and <laughs> and you would think no there's no way. There's no you know this is a, this got to be cruel in some way which we'll we'll get to that cuz there are people that think that, right? Right. It, you see these dogs they are and I know it's hard to believe but they're genuinely Excited about pulling that sled and I think it's it's I did I didn't understand it until I was there and and felt it in person Saw it in person witnessed all this and it was it was really cool day It was it was like a hundred bucks at the time. It's more now mm-hmm. to do this excursion uh, but it was so worth it. It was so much fun and just um, a, a real eye-opening experience. It gave you a little bit of history, mm-hmm. gave you some of the—you uh, could stand on a real—an actual dog sled that they had retired, you know, a wooden one, and, mm-hmm. and check that out. It was really cool, all the parts of it. And um, it just—it gave you a, a greater appreciation for what the sport is about, the history of it, the, you know, the, um, the truth behind it, really.
3: Right. Yeah, this is— this is the thing. So I, I just went to Alaska earlier this year. For the first time in my life, I was there for about 10 days. I wasn't too far out in the wilderness, but I was captivated by um, how close to the wild people are. Like, it doesn't even matter. Big, like, the, the, the biggest city in Alaska is still going to have... Uh, moose that run the town because moose are just huge. I would not be surprised <laughs> if there's a moose in downtown Anchorage that has like a mortgage business or something, <laughs> you know. Uh, so I was I was amazed by how close to wild we are, and this even goes into the rules of the Iditarod, which we'll we'll discuss in a little bit. Let's first uh, separate two important things here. Although the race is often called the Iditarod, right? there is it, it it goes on a route for the majority of the time that follows a trail the iditarod trail which is a different thing and it's it's very old it was used for centuries before the first europeans arrived to use it and the first people who identified and used this trail from, you know, from the European side of the ocean were Russian fur traders way back in the 1800s. Native people in Alaska or First Nations would use this uh, this trail system, right, to travel to different villages, and eventually it became one of those things like a, uh, what do you call it, like a desire path. It was just the best route from point A to point B to point C and so on, and so in 1908... Uh, government employees cleared the Iditarod Trail which made it a little easier to navigate but in 1910 someone found gold And that changes everything. In the right? town of Iditarod, right? In the town of
2: Iditarod. Yeah. Okay. Well, that did change everything because, uh, you know, that, that town, I guess, kind of blew up overnight, right? They became boom towns. And there were a lot of these in Alaska, as we all know, just from our history classes in, you know, elementary school. You, you kind of learn about the gold rushes and, and what was going on there. But what happened is then a lot of the, uh, um, the oh, what do they call veins, I guess, of gold? True. They dry up. You know, they they go away. You know, gold is no longer found. It's not profitable to, to do that. The town kind of dries up along the way with it. The town remains. It remains maybe, uh, you know, a shell of itself. It remains mm-hmm. kind of a, a skeleton of itself and becomes eventually um, a ghost town if if it's allowed to go that far. Some of them just kind of remain with uh, a few residents here and there. But you know what? Since we're talking about towns. Yeah. We... we kind of glossed over your trip to Alaska, Where, what towns did you go to? Any of the towns that might have been on the trail, or were you uh, a, a cruise passenger as well?
3: Uh, no, mainly Anchorage, and I had, to, I had to send a team to Cordoba, and then uh, they also went to Hitchinbrook Island, uh, and then I traveled up to Willow, Alaska. Did so. you say you had to send a team? Uh-huh. Okay.
2: This is interesting. I didn't even know you went to Alaska, so I'll have to ask you about this later. A lot of water uh, under but... the bridge, man. A lot of stuff happened. It's like, a lot he's, of like stuff a, happened. he's like an undercover. He's like a,
3: it's like a Navy SEAL or something.
2: Oh. SEAL Team Five somewhere.
3: Oh man, you know, uh, I, I gotta say, like it, maybe it's a story for another day. But yeah, the. Um, The boom and bust that you're talking about is very real, and it's happened around the world. When a town rises up based on a single resource,
5: Mm -hmm.
3: it is therefore dependent on that resource. The coal dries up, then a coal town dies, Mm -hmm. right? And same with gold. Uh, Mm
6: -hmm. Before mm -hmm. the gold actually dried up, the Guggenheims bought up a bunch of the smaller scale mines in the area around Flat and Iditarod. And they introduced a little bit more of like a mechanized, large-scale way of mining. Mm -hmm. So it didn't take as many individuals, like Uh... sitting there, you know, trying to strike gold in various places. So it kind of took away the need for mail deliveries and food deliveries and travel along the trails in between. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the gold may have dried up later, but before that happened... Like kind of like a large, I guess, company or conglomerate came in and started doing all the mining.
2: Uh, so I it needed see. less
6: individuals. And so
2: what's interesting is they, they had less individuals and it took away the need for food and the need for all that to, to for many, many people. That means that they never were... Quite established the point they could have been. They didn't get the roadway systems that they would have had. They didn't get, yeah. um, you know, the infrastructure that we would normally think of with, associate with a larger town, a small airport, even. Well, a, a lot, lot of, of things were that.
6: happening. Uh, railroads, for example, around
2: this time were sure. kind
6: of starting to be built in Alaska. Mm-hmm. So I think human travel along the trails just kind of it, a lot of different things happen at once to make this perfect storm. The, if you don't use these trails, they just. Uh, Go into disrepair, sort of. That's what keeps them there. You know, I the, see. the frequent travel.
2: Yeah, this so. is exactly what happened at the Bates Hotel, and that's, ex- that's exactly why that
3: <laughs> you know, could lead to bad things. It's true. Yeah. We all know that, right? Like the of horror mean? films. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's what Hitchcock called yeah. it. <laughs> uh, no, uh, so, it, it, one question we have to address here at the top before we get in the nuts and the bolts of the the race itself, uh, we need to explore the role of dog teams in general in this part of the world. Nowadays, we're very fortunate. There are airplanes all over the place. They, like There are tons and tons of Cessnas in Alaska, right? And they make f- small, you know, like puddle jumper flights. Oh, sure. Because it's uh, the best way to access uh, point A to point B in some cases. Before, there were airplanes delivering mail and supplies and so on to very remote areas of Alaska, People used dog teams. It was the best way to transport yourself and goods, uh, you know, game, food, water, so on. And many people lived a subsistence lifestyle where, you know, you were so familiar with your dog team that it was like your daily driver.
6: Just like horses would have been back then in areas further south. No, mm-hmm. oh, sure. And you and
2: yeah. you take care of them extremely well because that's your only way to get around. Mm-hmm. They're uh, they're extremely valuable to you, right? I mean, they're mm-hmm. they're like gold in themselves. Yeah. I mean, you don't want anything to happen to your dog team. You don't want anything to happen to your horse team. Of course, mm-hmm. um, they become like family members. Really, a lot of them. I, I would bet. I mean, yeah. it's not like uh, they're not just work animals. They're also part of the family. Similar, part
6: of, similar to your cars.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah. You have to take care of it. Yeah, well, it depends on the car, Kurt. Yeah. You know, I... <laughs> some, some uh, you, you grow out of favor with a yeah. little, uh, quickly, more quickly than others, right? But this is uh, this is a critical part here, right? Because yeah. we're talking about um, delivery of goods and services—or well, I guess goods—via uh, dog sled. So you know, what can you take? You can only take small items, really. Mm-hmm. But th- what happens when there's
3: maybe an emergency? Ah. Excellent question, Scott. It's almost as if you're setting me up for something. <laughs> no. <laughs> no uh, it's true. And this leads us directly to the story of the race that we call the Iditarod today, also called the last great race on Earth. Mm. Well, that's from Iditarod.com. They're yeah. a little biased. Well, sure. <laughs> uh, so in 1925, there were 20 mushers. Have we even talked... You mentioned musher. What's a musher? A uh, musher is the uh, the person driving the sled. Okay, riding the
2: sled. I guess I don't know. Driving? How not ride? Piloting? A pilot? Yeah, what maybe piloting. There? Captaining? Yeah,
6: captain. He kind of gives the shouts, the commands to uh, the dogs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they're, yeah. Mushing. yeah they're mushing. It's mushing. You're <laughs> mushing. mushing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> musher's
2: mush.
5: It's the Kia summer sticker sales event. So give
1: your friends something to look at, like a B and B with an ocean view
3: So in 1925, a team of 20 mushers uh, commanding about 150 sled dogs had to travel 674 miles. That's 1,085 kilometers for everybody outside of the U.S. and like two other countries. Uh, And they they traveled this tremendous distance in five and a half days, and they were on a mission, like some real superhero stuff. What were they doing?
6: They were delivering a serum to cure a diphtheria outbreak that they were having in
2: Nome at the time, oh, so they're going from uh, wherever the the I think initially it wasn't there. There was a plane I think that took the initial uh, um, serum right to a, a certain train. To, a train, train yeah, right? Or yeah, it a train. So get the took first it. little bit. Yeah, and then yeah. the train could no longer go the rest of the distance, so mm-hmm. the dogs yeah. were able to accommodate that. And, of course, we we said there were, what, 20 mushers, so that means 20 dog teams. The relay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, like a big relay race. You're right. It's like, you know, hand off the serum, get it on its way. Hand off the serum, get it on the way. And the reason they need the serum, I don't know if we even said this, it was diphtheria.
3: Right, there was a there was a diphtheria outbreak in Nome and the surrounding smaller communities, and it was a it was an epidemic. There's Mm -hmm. no two ways about it. The uh, authorities in Nome realized that the diphtheria antitoxin they did have was bad. It was it was expired. Yeah, it was a bum antitoxin. Use that and expect it to have efficacy. So they needed this stuff in a hurry, and that's why there's a relay because the dogs are still fresh, right? Mm -hmm. And so they can pass it off to one another. This became known... Oh, spoiler alert. They successfully completed the run. The diphtheria antitoxin was delivered. The town was saved. This is now known sometimes as the Great Race of Mercy or the Serum Run. And these people and their dogs... Became heroes. They were celebrities overnight. So much so that okay, we
2: got to remember this too—that we're talking about. Um, um, wait, okay, we know where Alaska is, right? How far away Alaska is from New York? Yes. Okay, there is a statue in uh, in um, Central Park in in New York City of one of the dogs that they consider to be like uh, the hero dog. It's the lead dog that finally brought the serum into Nome, right? Mm-hmm. It's the last dog. Um, it is um, his, his name is Balto 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 the dog and you can go see balto the dog statue in in central park and you have seen it right ben yes yeah so it's still there still there and uh and you know a lot of people had uh, there was a little bit of controversy over balto balto if you can believe this or not i mean the the musher of course and i don't even remember the guy's name right now but he's also a hero um but there was a, a particular dog and musher that they thought should have been given all this credit because it was the one that took the most difficult leg of the journey. And I don't right. recall from what town to what town that was. I read that yesterday, and I should have written it down, but I didn't. <laughs> so it's, uh, there, there was somewhat, uh, somewhat of a controversy be- you know, between Balto and this other dog because this dog just simply was the, the last one. There were 20 along the way that, uh, that probably deserve equal credit.
3: Yeah,
6: the one you're referring to is a dog named Togo. Oh, okay. And um, he was the lead dog for Leonard Cipolla, who competed in a race that they had, a sled dog race that they had in Alaska pre-World War I. Whoa. Okay. Um, So he won it the last four times that they did this race. It was called the All Alaska Sweepstakes
3: i to give some background real quick on, on, on what Sopala and Togo did. They did cover, as you guys said, the, the most hazardous leg of the journey. They made a round trip of 261 miles from Nome to Shaktulik and then back to Golovin. And this means they delivered the serum a total of 91 miles, which is almost double the distance that any other team did. Ah, okay. So they really uh, they put it out there. They, uh, they delivered Balto just had a better PR team, I guess. Yeah, you they know? got to they they were the
2: ones that they got you the know, finish, finish line, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> isn't there a saying? I mean, I, it's probably a bumper sticker, but you know, unless you're the lead dog, the the view never changes. Oh, that's Is wow! That the, Did you write that? No, that's pretty good. No, well, it's uh, it's kind of funny too if you think about it.
3: It also makes me think that if you're unless you're the lead dog, you're always looking at another dog's butt. That's what I mean. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. yeah, that's what
2: that's the way I always take it. But I think it, it's got a deeper
3: meaning as well. I believe. You know, a less butt-centric <laughs> meaning. Uh, there's also a statue of Balto in downtown Anchorage. Can I
2: can I stop you for a second? Yeah. You, okay. Since we're talking about this, yeah. I just have to say this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the most shocking parts of the trip that uh, the uh, the the one mile trip that I was on the oh, uh, for the dog know, sled training the dog camp. sled yeah. training camp is that while we're <laughs> this so gross and don't let this discourage you from doing this if you get a chance. Oh boy, the dogs well, they uh, they crap while they run. They don't stop, so like they don't wait until it's rest time to go off in the woods and go. They go while they're running, and, like horses. Uh, and yes, and it gets flipped up, and it, and you don't realize <laughs> it, right, as a passenger <laughs> until you're done, and then you're like, "What is that?" So you know, you may or may not experience this. I don't know. It kind of depends on you know what what happens when. Yeah, but these dogs, like they just they just go as they're go- like full speed ahead, and mm-hmm. of course, it gets thrown all, thrown all over you. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody talks about that. It's a shocking moment. My kid was uh, just—I uh, don't know—just upset about that Did for you get a while. Hit with I, was, it? I also was upset. It's not like it's—it's it's like the. Oh, this is so gross. It's just like it's like as if somebody was riding a bicycle in front of you, and you know, mud gets flipped up on you or something. It's like little drops of yeah. mud and and rocks and things like that that get thrown up. Yeah, yeah. But, but then poop. you realize later, like, oh, wait a minute. Some of that's dog crap. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> yeah, so just beware, but don't, again, don't let that discourage you. Okay. That's incredible insight. I,
3: <laughs> I'm i glad, you know, I, I'm shocked I didn't think of that, Kurt. Did you? Uh, had, had you thought, I not yeah, even dawned some, on me. It is but something. It makes really, sense. Well, I'm not going to tell my girlfriend until we're on the sled. No, you know, and, and again, maybe just bring some <laughs> goggles.
2: Great. (laughs) All right, I interrupted. No, no, that's perfect. And
3: that's valuable information for anybody who's planning on uh, going sledding after hearing this story.
5: But We Loved is a podcast about queer history. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic.
1: Jerry had died of AIDS, and it's like, what is happening?
5: It was survival. That's why it's called survival sex. But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught— The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. From iHeart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. Listen to But We Loved on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling, is choosing the right travel partner.
1: Gene, Eugene Fodor. Gene, was it?
0: Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with.
5: So you ride the books, Gene, and vlasta runs the business. I understand now. It is a wise man Uh, who marries a wiser woman.
0: Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get
3: your podcasts. So we said there were two different kind of competing stories, right? Uh, Many people will claim that the gnome run from 1925 was the inspiration for the Iditarod that happens annually today. Uh, we do want to say one other thing about the Gnome Run. They it helped inspire an inoculation campaign throughout the U.S. for diphtheria. It's so always it, positive, yeah. Always so it positive. even had a better yeah. ending. There's another story that you will find from the Iditarod's own website, and it differs. Uh, it differs a little bit uh, because in this version of events. There's a guy named Joe Reddington Sr., who's lived in Alaska, spent a lot of time using dog sled teams himself in his day-to-day work. And their story is that in 1973, uh, Joe Reddington launched the Iditarod race as a way to preserve the culture of dog sledding, uh, especially in Alaska.
2: Yeah, and that's because uh, machines were taken over, right? Yeah, yeah, they were in a John Henry
3: situation there for a moment. I think so too. Yeah,
2: so we're talking about uh, well, they call them snow machines. I've heard a lot of people call them snow machines, but we, I, I've always in my life called them snowmobiles. Right. So right. snowmobiles are taken over, and and I think we can all picture this time frame. You know, in the early nineteen seventies, or at least you know of them. You've seen. Uh, snowmobiles from that era and they look essentially like they do now i mean they're a lot more sleek now a lot more uh, you know they look like a, a high-powered motorcycle now or something they're but, more
3: reliable too. yeah
2: they are but but back then in 1973 uh, they were finding that yeah they've got these machines and they can do it and it's it's easier on you know of course easier on the dogs the dogs stay at home you know sure. laid by the fire or whatever they do yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um and it's faster but they're not as reliable not nearly as reliable as the dogs are. And they found that, uh, you know, we've got to preserve this part of our history. It's not just for for the historical aspect of it, but here's something that's going to work every time, and we know. We've known it for centuries.
3: Yeah, yeah. The people who were there uh, so far before Alaska became a U.S. territory, let alone a state, have been dog sledding. So Joe eventually gets everybody on board with this. The first Iditarod race occurs in nineteen seventy-three. The winner is a fellow named Dick Wilmarth. It takes him 20 days, 49 minutes, and 41 seconds. So that so you'll also hear um, again from Iditarod, they'll say that the Gnome Run of 25 inspired a different race called the Serum Run that Joe also started. So these these event there's there's a little bit of contradiction there but every everybody agrees on the following fact the first iditarod race official race was in 1973 which is maybe a little younger than i think a lot of people associate it with yeah. because we have to remember we've seen all these images from the 1800s and so of, of dog sled teams because dog sledding Had already been very well established before someone decided to make it a race.
2: Yeah, sure. And you know, this is uh, this is the very public version of of dog sledding. Of course, dog sleds, as you said, have been used for many, many purposes for centuries before this. But but to put it out in front of everybody and say, here's here's what we're doing. We're doing this incredible test of human endurance. Uh, I'm going to say dog endurance too. I mean, I don't know if that's not measured often. Dog endurance, dog endurance is, yeah. is the word. I <laughs> you want to put that, but 20 <laughs> days, 20 days is what it took to make this course, and you know. As you can imagine, as we'll get to later, that, that record has has dropped and dropped and dropped. So it's it's become a much faster race. Um, people are getting a lot more competitive about the whole thing. And not that they weren't competitive before, but you know how this goes. I mean, this is our quest to the four-minute mile thing. You know, like when everybody <laughs> was trying to beat the four-minute mile, and it was like they're shaving off, you know, just fractions of a second here and there, and finally someone broke it, and then now that's been shattered. You know, and when we talk about records being shattered, I mean, you look back to 1973— and the current record, which we'll tell you later, dramatic difference, huge, huge difference. But um, it's not so much the desire to get there as fast has changed or anything like that. It's just that maybe there's some improvements in food for the animals. Sure. Material uh, you know, science. Higher energy. Material science is a big thing. Um, I I don't think aerodynamics plays into this <laughs> really, not that much. Um, it, it, Maybe we'll weigh in on some of these factors that we think have have led to greatly reduced times. Prize uh, as money we get later in this. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, prize prize money is a is a huge uh, kick in the butt, isn't it? Right. It makes yeah. you makes you get up early in the morning and, and head out and try to uh, make it to the next stop. But More uh, aerodynamic yep. turds. I don't know.
3: <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that could be. Yeah. But you know what? You know what's maybe even. Something else that no one has ever really heard of, outside of you know, if you're an Iditarod follower, somebody sure. who, who tracks them on GPS every year, and there are people that do that. There are two routes. There's one that does go through Iditarod, the actual town of Iditarod, mm-hmm. and there's another route as well, and they run them in different years. So there's the there's a north south uh, there's a north route and a south route. And uh, what is it, the, the North Route, I believe, is run in the even-numbered years. Yep. Okay, and and that route, the total distance from, what, Anchorage to Nome, uh, is somewhere around 975 miles. That's, that's ballpark, because it changes a little bit here and there Yeah. Uh, based on current conditions, you know, if there was a rock slide or, you know, whatever. Lack um, of snow
6: sometimes makes mm-hmm. them change the route oh, a yeah, little yeah, bit. Absolutely.
2: Absolutely, avalanche or whatever, or you know, bad it, weather. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, uh, and then there's a south route, and that's run on the odd number of years. So in 2019, that we, that we ran on the or they ran on the south route, and that one's a little bit longer. It's 998 miles. And what I find maybe even I, I keep saying what I find most interesting, mm-hmm. but it's it's what I find interesting about this is that. They typically just round the mileage up to roughly about 1000. I think it, in fact they go as far as to say 1, 049 1049 miles. And I, yeah. what's what's the significance of that,
3: Ben? It's because Alaska <laughs> is the 49th US state. So, and th- and in
2: all likelihood these guys are probably going that far or farther really. I mean, you have to there's got to be some variance to the trail really. I mean, like, like Kurt was saying, you know, the bad weather can, uh, a tree could fall, you have to go around, and maybe a tree is a bad example, it's a, sm- a short distance around, but you have to take an alternate route around, as long as it's allowed, there's also,
3: it. There's also this idea of distributing the impact of the race across these small villages by alternating the mm-hmm. route, because some of these places have, you know, maybe a few hundred inhabitants. Yeah. So this can be a big deal yeah. when, when folks come through. Huge
2: economic impact when mm-hmm. the Iditarod uh, the goes through your town that year, right? Yeah. It's, it really is because people fly in for this. People want to come in for, uh, you know, these these. Uh, package experiences that they purchase. You know, they want to ride along with somebody or they want to, you know, stay at the, a certain hotel and watch the, the people come in, or they even get an opportunity to, to sign in some people that are checking in for the night. And, oh, yeah. You know, things like that. They offer some great uh, perks if you want to buy into one of these these package deals. But just the overall growth of, like, you know, being able to put these people up for the week or however Mm -hmm. long they're going to stay, maybe even longer. The meals that they serve, uh, you know, people are buying clothing, they're buying souvenirs, of course.
3: You
2: know, there's all kinds of Yeah, Taking their own dog sled home, I don't know.
3: Oh no, man! They're not, they're Can you imagine <laughs> what an amazing present? Yeah, it's not uh, really a carry on. What us. a useless present if you don't have at least like <laughs> six dogs already. Uh, but this, there is so much more to this story. Uh, we have decided to make this a two-part. Episode. So we just—it's so weird, you guys. We just started getting to the specifics of the race, but I think the history was interesting. I I, mm-hmm. I learned uh, I learned several things that I did not know. I, I was barely aware of the sweepstakes until uh, you had told us about it, Kurt. Uh, mm-hmm. What what's what do you say to this, guys? What if we pause our story here? And we return in part two of our episode on the Iditarod, taking a closer look at the equipment, taking a look at uh, some more stuff about the race itself, as well as, of course, the dogs. Other than Balto and Togo, we barely got to them.
2: I also want to mention a few of these rules because I went through the the entire rule book. Oh, yeah, uh, yesterday right. I read it's fifteen pages and you'd think that's really boring, but this is not a boring rule book. It's interesting. <laughs> I think there's some some standouts here that I want to share with our audience and with you guys, I don't know I'm sure if you even know these rules. Um, but the equipment too. I mean, the dog sleds themselves, there's more to the sled than you might think. it's not, is it's not the simple. Uh, you know, wooden structure that you think it is. There's there's far more to it, and uh, they're pretty fascinating, really.
3: Mm-hmm. And you can learn more. You can continue the conversation in part two of our upcoming episode, but you don't have to wait for that. Uh, just Just between uh, just between the four of us, uh, Kurt, Scott, myself, and you listening, uh, you can hop on to the internet and find us there to continue the conversation. We are on Facebook as Car Stuff. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. All the hits, all the good ones. And, of course, uh, we want to give a huge thanks to all of our regular listeners who tuned in. Scott, I don't know if you noticed, uh, but on Facebook, Kurt and I were getting a lot of people who were starting to brew this conspiracy.
6: Yeah. Uh, Free uh, Scott. Free (laughs) Scott. Where are y'all hiding, Scott?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm back and I'm safe. And, uh, And I was in no danger no danger. So uh, conspiracy theorists, you can rest easy, right?
5: Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll, uh, well, I guess we'll check in with you next time. And, uh, and thanks for listening, everybody. We appreciate it. Car Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
5: This is the story of the one.